0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 26, 2021, and this is show number 855. Well, this is probably not going to be a super long show, but it is going to be long enough because of the generosity of Jill from the Northwoods, who sent in a contribution to the show. We uh, went off to uh, visit Lindsay and Nolan this weekend and got to play with the grandkids. And so I was able to relax because of Jill. And uh, this still came up with a few posts of my own. But there's no big, long, scary, meaty post to uh, keep you entertained this week. Now, I have a love of numbers and especially numbers that make sense. I was chatting with Bart and uh, Mark Polley about how much it pleased me when I found out many years ago that BMW models, model numbers made sense. The first digit, the 3, 5, or 7, it tells you the body style, and the last two digits give you the engine displacement. So a BMW 320i had 2.0 liter engines, and I was, I was so excited when I found that out. That just made me happy that the numbers made sense. They meant something. And then I explained that I was distressed when they made that just sort of a guideline, Nowadays, if you look at, say, a 328i sedan, that has a 2.0-liter engine, not a 2.8-liter engine, and the 335 has a 3-liter engine. It, it, just, it just makes me crazy that it no longer makes sense. Anyway, this isn't a show about model numbers on cars, but my desire and joy in clean, understandable numbering, numbering is relevant. You see, there isn't a chit-chat across the pond this week. And there wasn't one two weeks ago for one very important, to me, reason. If I skipped those two episodes, it meant that the very first episode of Programming by Stealth when we start on the backend development with PHP will be episode 700. We also started this series after JavaScript on installment 100 of Programming by Stealth, and that made me happy too. So it's a dumb reason to skip shows, but it makes me happy, so I did it. When people look at the pricing of a Synology, the sticker shock is really shocking. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The enclosures themselves are expensive, and then filling the enclosures with drives is very expensive because you have to buy more than you would think to get the protection of mirrored data. On top of all that, I'm betting that when most people hear about Synology, they think of it as just a bunch of mirrored disks to back up their data on their network. Even if they do know that the Synology platform is a rich ecosystem of applications on a very capable server, they probably think to themselves that they won't really use much if any of that capability. I know this to be true because it's how I felt when I looked at Synology pricing. Somewhere along the line, though, I kept hearing about cool things you could do with them, and I decided to take it on faith that I would eventually figure out how to justify such an enormous expense. Now remember, a Synology really is a server. It's not just a bunch of disks. Synology's come with a vast amount of software to do amazing things, and I'm sure I don't understand even 10% of what they're capable of accomplishing even yet. What I do know is that it's a mistake to underestimate what your Synology can do. A couple of weeks ago, I solved a problem with Synology, and when I was done, it was such an obvious solution that I felt like a dummy for not thinking of it before. But I'm not a dummy. I just didn't know it could do what it is now doing for me. Let's take a look at the problem to be solved. Steve and I store all of our sensitive financial and health data on our Synology. We don't want it ever existing on our local computers, especially our laptops. And even on a desktop, we could run the danger of accidentally having it synced to iCloud or Dropbox or Google Drive. I don't know about you, but it's actually hard for me to find a folder on my computer that's not synced somewhere these days. A network attached storage device that has the data only on that on our network was the perfect solution. Since the NAS has mirroring, my data is protected from the most common catastrophe, you know, that of a single failed disk. But I wanted more of a backup than that, so I set up my old Drobo as a backup for the Synology. I've got that all automated and it works really well. With that backup, I'm now protected from disk failure and from a complete meltdown of the Synology, and that has been known to happen to people, but it doesn't give me an off-site backup. As our climate change continues to ravage the world because of our inaction, I'm watching fires and floods and tornadoes, and I live in earthquake country, so not having off-site backups is getting dumber and dumber. I've never done it, though, because it's too hard. Now, I knew I could create a sparse encrypted bundle, and I could put the data in there and ship it off to a cloud service, but a non-automated backup is a bad backup. I couldn't figure out how to automate it. I finally wrote a post in our Programming by Stealth channel in our Podfeet Slack, where all my little automation nerd friends hang out asking for their help in creating an automated solution. So I wanted them to help me because that's what it's all about over in Slack. As soon as I got finished writing up that post asking how to do it, it occurred to me to do an online search for, quote, how to do an encrypted off-site backup from a Synology. It turns out Synology has the tool and off-site service to solve this exact problem. Synology provides a built-in tool called Package Center where you can download official Synology apps or vetted third-party apps. Think of it as a lot like the Mac App Store because you can get apps outside of the Package Center too, but you've got a vast set of options already available inside Package Center. Synology Package Center includes software written by Synology called Hyper Backup and that can back up your data on your Synology to connected USB drives, remote NAS devices, file servers using tools like Rsync and you can use WebDAV. They also have support for backing up to cloud services such as Dropbox, Google Drive, Amazon S3, Microsoft Azure, and several more that I've never even heard of before. When you look at the options in Hyper Backup, if you don't notice the scroll bar, you'll think Hyper Backup only supports Dropbox and Google Drive. So be sure to scroll down if you want to view all of your options. Having all of these different uh, cloud services as options is great, but the most important thing about Hyper Backup is that by default, it is encrypted in transit to the server, and you cannot disable that option. On top of that, you can also choose to enable client-side encryption. This is exactly what I wanted. I don't care who you are. I don't trust you to take my data and then encrypt it for me in your cloud. Allowing the Synology to automatically do the encryption locally before backing it up to the cloud is exactly what I want. But that's not all. Synology also has its own cloud storage service called Synology C2 Storage. I've never paid for online storage like Amazon S3 or Wasabi because I always looked at the enormity of data we have for all of Steve's video files, and if I did that, it would be hundreds of dollars per month to put everything I have up on a, you know, an off-site storage. But if I only really need to back up this one financial folder, turns out it's really inexpensive. Synology C2 has a plan for $60 a year for a terabyte of data, and that allows daily backups and keeps 11 backup versions stored over 30 days. Now, 60 bucks a year isn't too bad, but when I used Synology's storage analyzer to look at my financial folder, I discovered it's less than 8 gigabytes, so 1 terabyte would be way overkill for what I need. Now, Synology has two smaller plans, the lowest of which is 100 gigabytes for 10 bucks a year. Now, this might not be the best dollar per gigabyte rate in town, but it's only 10 bucks. Would you pay 10 bucks a year to get this kind of data back in case of a disaster? I sure would. I signed up for the least expensive plan, and I was delighted to find out, after I signed up, that there's a free 30-day trial. So I marked my calendar to cancel it if I changed my mind before the 30 days was done. Now, before jumping right into backing up this precious data to the cloud, I did some experiments. I created a volume on my Synology for testing, and I put one little text file in it. Then I walked through the tutorial steps in the great knowledge base article from Synology just so I could understand how Hyper Backup works. It's actually incredibly easy to set up a backup to any service or server you like. I was going to walk through the step-by-step process for you, but then I realized the knowledge base article I referenced already does that, and it did a better job than I would anyway. So instead, let's talk through the experience of running the backup and then recovering data. I created a backup task for my one volume with its itty-bitty text file in it, and I set it to backup to Dropbox. I ran it once unencrypted, and then discovered you can't change it to encrypted after the fact. No big deal, that gave me a chance to practice by creating a new backup task that was encrypted. I had hoped that when I looked in Dropbox at my backup, I'd see the same little folder with its little text file in it, but instead, I saw glop. And by glop, I mean a bunch of database files and folders with names like guard and pool and config and Synology hyperbackup.bkpi. You know, like I said, glop. I'm okay with the database, but I vastly prefer when I can see the files. In this case, I'll be encrypting them anyway, so I wouldn't be able to see them over on Dropbox, so I'm really not going to fret about it. I went back to the Synology and I purposely deleted my one little text file and I emptied the recycle bin on my Synology. In Hyper Backup, I found a giant restore button, which restored the entire directory. In my case, it was the same as restoring a file, but it got me to wondering, how do you restore just one lost file? Well, a quick jaunt to the internets, and I learned that there's a little restore button too, so I had to hit the big restore button. you got to find the little restore button. The big one looks like a turn-back time icon, while the little one is a magnifying glass with a clock face. A little bit confusing. You know, the icons could easily have words because they have plenty of real estate for them, but at least if you hover over them, you can find out what they mean. Speaking of not knowing what the icons mean, I'm afraid hyper-backup is not accessible through Voiceover. Much of the Synology interface is accessible, but definitely not hyper-backup. Angry fish shake at that. So back to my experiments. I deleted my little file again, and then tried the little magnifying glass to choose just the file I wanted, and it worked perfectly. I ran the same experiment, but this time told the backup task to encrypt locally before uploading to the server. I was prompted by hyper-backup for a password to encrypt the files, and I was warned that it would be my own darn fault if I lost that password. I put the password in one password to be safe, and I clicked OK. Then something surprising happened. I got a pop-up asking if I'd allowed downloads from this Safari tab. It downloaded a a .pem file, and that contains the encryption certificate in case I forgot the password. I'd actually never seen that before. When trying to restore a file using Hyper Backup, you have the option to type in your password, or you can drag in the .pem file, and it will then give you access. Now I have to figure out where to store this encryption certificate file. I could put it in one password, but I already have the password stored there, so I sort of feel like it should be in a second place. Anyway, I tested dragging the .pem file into the window to restore my encrypted file, and it worked to champ. Alright, let's do this thing. After my success, with the ease of using hyper-backup with my little tiny text file, I created a new backup task, I pointed to Synology C2 Offsite Storage, Pointed at my financial volume on the Synology, I checked the box for client-side encryption and I hit go. It started to go really quickly, so I went for a half-hour walk and sometime before I got back, it was completely finished. It could not have been easier. So the entire process to set up an encrypted off-site backup of my financial data took far less time than it took to craft my message to the Slack community asking them how to do it. The bottom line is to remember that the Synology platform is not just a bunch of disks. It's a powerful, capable server with so many goodies inside it. I can't wait to learn more.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Jill from the North Woods. I thought I would share with you a new toy that I think is just great. As some of you may have heard, I have a slight podcast problem. I listen to podcasts all the time. When I'm not listening to podcasts, I start to fidget. It has become that much of an addiction. But here's my problem. I love to camp. And what kind of person walks around their campsite either listening to something so loud they can't hear nature or has something so noise-canceling they can't hear nature? I like to hear the birds. And I like to hear when a bear comes up behind me. So I could listen through my amazing Sony headphones that blocks out every sound possibly made. I could put my AirPods in, which does a fantastic job of blocking out all the noise. Or I could use the AirPods on transparent mode, where I hear some of the noise, but not the noise in its raw, beautiful format, just some sort of processed version of it. None of that really works for nature. So, what I brought camping my last time was called the Aftershocks Open Move headphones. These are bone conducting headphones. And what they do is they work by transmitting noise to your jawbone. And this allows you to have the headset actually on your cheekbones instead of inside your ears. You can hear the whole outside world exactly as it sounds. And that's great when the outside world is beautiful and full of nature and birds chirping and bears growling. It's a perfect way to listen to podcasts or music or books at the same time you're out in nature. And the interesting thing about it is it doesn't cloud up either of them. I can hear whatever is being played on my headset quite clearly but I can also hear the nature behind me also clearly. For whatever reason, everything sounds distinct, so I can tell what's inside my headphones and I can tell what's outside in nature. They both work really well together. I think if Allison were sitting in the same room with me at the same time I was listening to her podcast, with the way the sound works, I would totally be able to tell the difference between her voice in the same room and her voice on the podcast. It's that clearly defined. The other cool thing about bone conduction headphones is if you do have hearing loss, it still does work. You can even use them if you use a hearing aid, which I think is pretty fantastic. The open move that I have is the lowest priced version out there, and it runs about $80. The headphones themselves have a band and the two vibration pods that rest on your cheekbone. And that's what produces the vibrations to your cheekbone so it sounds like noise. At first, I noticed they were there, but as I went forward in time, I stopped even focusing on the fact they were there. And I was able to actually spend most of my time camping and then eventually going for a nice hike without having any battery issues at all. And like I said, I could hear all the nature around me while at the same time listening to my podcast. Have I mentioned I'm 13 days behind? The biggest complaints about them when I was looking at some of the people's reviews about it is that maybe it's uncomfortable or the fact that it doesn't do noise cancellation, obviously because it's not filling your ear. It does come with a pair of earplugs, which is what they call noise cancellation. I thought it was kind of funny. The Open OpenMove headphones are equipped with Bluetooth 5.0 and can connect to multiple devices. Pairing was easy and worked right away. There are three EQ settings when it comes to these headphones. One of them is normal listening. One is for voice listening, which would be great for my podcast. And the other is when you decide to use those earplugs. The other thing that I liked about the version I got, besides the great price on it, is that it also charges with USB-C. A lot of the other versions of these headphones have a special proprietary charger that almost looks like a magnet-style charging device. I'm sure that's pretty handy but I would take having the USB-C charging any day. I heard one lady complain that she broke her charger on a trip and couldn't find it anywhere so that her headphones became useless to her. Now, I listen to podcasts and a few Audible books, and I wonder what kind of experience the music would be. I found the music was fine. I thought I could hear the music. I could enjoy the music. But if you are a music connoisseur who really loved those deep basses and hearing all those instruments in there, You might get frustrated. I'm not sure the sound is quite that good. I found that the microphone was fantastic. It has noise canceling on it and people were able to hear me quite well. I also had a friend test out how loud the headphones had to get before she could hear what I was listening to. And I turned it up and I turned it up. It was almost too painful for me to listen to where she could actually hear some mumbling words. So for those of you who are afraid who have this open ear headphone, other people will be able to hear what you're listening to. So far, I've not found that to be true. I noticed that as I started turning the volume up higher and higher, the actual headphones started vibrating a little bit. And I guess that goes away with the more expensive versions. The buttons are multifunction buttons. There's a whole chart about what they can do from calling up your voice assistant to making them louder, softer, next track, answer phone calls. But I struggle, quite honestly, whenever there's a multi-function button going on. I got so used to the simplicity of my AirPods. I'm sure if these were my primary headphones, I would learn them quite well and get used to it. But honestly, I find controlling it easier on my phone than actually using the headphone itself, which I know sometimes is not optimal when you're biking or running with these headphones. So I have a lot of use cases for this. Like I said, I like to go hiking or camping and I was able to listen to podcasts. But I also use this for biking. It fits nicely underneath my bike helmet. It works really well for biking. That way I can hear traffic. I can hear people coming up behind me because I'm super slow and everyone's like on the left, which means they're passing me because I'm so slow. I can hear that quite clearly while at the same time, again, listening to things while I'm riding my bike and not feeling like I'm gonna get run over by a car. There are some other bike helmets that have this built in too. As a side note, I also do have the Koros bike helmet, which also makes use of the Jawbone technology. And this is what I primarily bike in. And it's not so much because it works in any sort of different way or that one sounds better than the other. They actually both sound very similar. The reason that I use the Koros helmet instead of using the Aftershocks headphones is because the Koros comes with a remote control. So instead of, fiddling around with tiny buttons trying to get the headset to actually work correctly, I'm able to actually use this remote, which mounts to the very top of my handlebar, and I find that much easier and safer to use when I'm biking. The Chorus helmet also has turn directions on the back of the helmet, which you can control from that very same remote. I can imagine, too, where you're walking in an urban area, and you're worried that you might get hit by a car who's honking at you, or you won't hear something that's coming your way, this would be also a perfect time to use this kind of headphone. There are some other models out there. One of them is called OpenCom, which has a boom mic on it so that if you do a lot of phone calls and maybe you want to be a little bit more clear than the microphone that just comes with every model, this one will allow you to flip it down and use the microphone. Then there's the Aeropax, and the Aeropax is the most expensive one. But the nice thing about this particular one is the battery lasts longer, about twice as much time, but it also comes in more sizes. So I feel the version I have is a little too big for my head, and I would probably prefer the mini version of it, but it costs almost twice as much at $160. The more expensive model has magnets that can clasp around your neck, so it makes it less likely that they might fall off. And for the extra base, the more waterproof, And that smaller frame, I don't really think that was worth my money. They have a few other models out there, but those are the three main models that exist. So overall, I give these a great review. They come with little stickers on them so that you can make them your own and make them look all fancy with racing stripes. And I think anyone who does want to hear the outside world, has some trouble hearing, and is not too much in love with exact musical representation, you would like them too. Heck, I even listened to Allison's live show on Sunday night with those headphones while I was listening to all the raccoons eating all my food at the campsite. It was perfect. I loved it. And I love these headphones too. They certainly have a use in my life. And you too can come to the live show and wear any earphones you want to. But if you're hoping to listen to nature and the live show, I highly recommend the Aftershocks headphones. Thank you much. And come for our live show. You can listen to them in any kind of headphone.
0: Well, thank you so much for that, Jill. That was fantastic. And I love the plug for the live show. I'm not sure I'd highly recommend you uh, missing out on nature and listening to a podcast, but if you're addicted like Jill, it certainly does make sense. And it really was fun having her in the live show while she was out camping. That was really cool. I did want to mention that uh, Bart did a review of the Trex Titanium back in 2016, and he's been a huge fan of them. Uh, When they finally wore out, I know he bought another pair. So uh, definitely the, uh, I I call it Trex Titanium. That's from Aftershocks. That was the the, uh, one that he got. But anyway, um, they definitely sound like great headphones. I'm amazed at how generous so many people are to support the podcast through Patreon. Now, I know everyone can't afford to do it, and you know I really don't want anyone to stretch themselves if they can't afford it. But did you also know that a very, very teeny percentage of listeners actually do support the show financially? It would make me really happy if you could afford it if you'd go to podfeet.com Patreon and find a dollar amount that shows the value you get out of the content we create here at the Podfeet Podcasts. If you're a normal person, you wait a long time between buying new phones because there's no reason to upgrade every year. This is especially true with iPhones. Of course, the newest ones have some increased capability, but you know, for the most part, they're all rectangular pieces of glass with essentially the same user interface, the same apps run on them, and Apple upgrades the older phones right along with the new phones. For example, the brand new shiny iOS 15 runs on iPhones as far back as the 6S, which was introduced in 2015. That means an owner of a six-year-old iPhone can within the limitations of the hardware, play along with the cool kids who have brand new iPhones. iPhones are not inexpensive by any means, but they hold their value because they don't age out nearly as quickly as some other manufacturers' phones. But if you're a consumer of the PodFeed podcast, you aren't a normal person. You pretty much upgrade your phone as often as you can possibly afford to do it. Sure, the Ray Robertsons of the world eschew the newest gadgets until upgrading is unavoidable, but even Ray was jealous of his wife's iPhone 12 photos and upgraded to the 13 just this week. When you get a new iPhone these days, Apple makes it crazy easy to move everything from the old phone to the new. When I turned on the 13 Pro this week, my iPhone 12 Pro that was sitting next to it offered to help in the setup of the new device By following the instructions on the two phones, an iCloud backup was initiated on my iPhone 12 Pro to ensure it was up to date. I was on a 10 megabit per second upload internet connection, and the backup took ah, like 5 to 10 minutes. After the iCloud backup was complete, the new iPhone offered me two options. Use the iCloud backup, which it estimated would take about 15 minutes. Or if I'd rather do a phone-to-phone transfer, it would take an hour and a half. How crazy is that? Well, the obvious answer was to use iCloud. Now, I suspect the difference between the two of these is that iCloud uh, goes, it takes all of your data from the iCloud backup, but then it downloads every app from iCloud, from from the app store separately. And that's why it really says 15 minutes. It's not really 15 minutes. But if you do phone-to-phone transfer, I suspect it may transfer the apps as well, but don't take my word for it, because there's no way I was going to wait an hour and a half when I could have this 15-minute option. In less than the estimated 15 minutes, my iPhone told me I could start to play with it while the apps continued to self-install. Yay, time to play with the new iPhone. But that's when I realized the curse of a buy-every-year iPhone user. After this easy update and transfer of data, my new iPhone looked exactly like my old iPhone. Sure, if I flipped it over, I could see the huge camera array of the 13 Pro and that it was dwarfing the iPhone 12 Pro's camera array and the pretty Sierra Blue of the 13 Pro was different. But how often do you look at that side of your phone? So for around $1,000, my iPhone looked the same. I knew it had a faster processor, had better graphics performance and had that 120 Hertz motion we've been jonesing for that 98% of us will never notice, but it looked the same. That's when I decided to do the unthinkable. I did a reset to factory settings and I set it up as a new phone. I can't remember the last time I did a nuke and pave on an iPhone. I think there's a couple of good reasons to do one, only one of which is to make it look new. It forces you to understand how your iPhone does all the things it does. We get complacent because it just works. Well, except for when it's fiddly. Anyway, when it just works, you don't remember how the different features are interconnected. I hadn't done a nuke and pave for so long that I had 11 screens of apps on my old phone, so many apps that I knew I didn't actually use. Like on a Mac, trying to delete apps you don't use doesn't really clean much up because you're you're convinced, well, I might use that one. I have to start from scratch and add what I do use in order to get down to a reasonable number of apps. Also, like on the Mac, I wouldn't recommend a nuke and pave if you need to be instantly productive on your new device. It takes a while because while you think you know everything you use, if you're anything like me, you'll forget mission-critical apps until you really need them. On my Mac nuke and paves, I have an elaborate mind map to remind myself of what apps are mission-critical so I know which ones to do first. But I did the iPhone nuke and pave just kind of on a whim, so I'm just now learning which apps I really depend on. Would you believe I was about to enter my Google password for the third time before I remembered to install one password? That was really dumb. One of my main goals was quickly achieved. My new iPhone looks completely different. Without the automatic transfer of data, I didn't have a wallpaper that had simply always been there. I had to choose my wallpaper. Now I tend to use a dark home screen wallpaper but this time I chose a very light blue photo that I took of the sun setting from the plane flying into Maryland last week. I'm really liking it so far. Mostly because it's different. I deliberately didn't look at my previous iPhone to see how I had the apps laid out on my home screen. So far I still have an entirely empty row on my home screen and I only have three icons in my dock. I only have two pages of apps mostly because I made two folders, one called useful Apple apps and one called useless Apple apps. You know, with things like stocks and uh, I don't know, I don't use the news app. There's a whole lot of stuff from Apple that I don't like to use. So it was really handy to just get them right at the very beginning. I could see them all on one page and take them all and shove them all into that useful, useless Apple apps folder. Now, I'm sure I'm missing something from my home screen, but it's really interesting to think from scratch about which apps I really need to go to that quickly. Without incumbent apps, I can be deliberate about arranging things for ease of use. Now, I don't want to pretend that this process is going smoothly, though. I didn't realize for two full days that my Apple Watch wasn't actually paired to the new phone. Pairing an Apple Watch is a very simple process. You open the Apple Watch app on the phone and it offers to let you pair a watch. Then it opens a little viewer and it says to scan this swirly cloud thing on the Apple Watch. It's kind of a fancy pants uh, QR code. Well, that works just grand, but only if the Apple Watch offers up the swirly cloud thing. It does offer to let you set up pairing manually, but it's not actually helpful at all. It says, tap the eye icon on your Apple Watch to view its name, then tap the corresponding name in the list below. But where do you find that eye icon if the swirly thing isn't there? After reading every Apple support article and scouring the web only to find no helpful methods to get past this issue, I called my good friend and Apple consultant, Pat Dengler. She knew the answer. You have to entirely reset the Apple Watch to factory settings. Now, she just happened to know this because she had an issue trying to go backwards from a more advanced beta version of iOS 15 to the released version, and she was forced to do a nuke and pave. And she also got stuck in the Apple Watch limbo. She warned me that I would lose any exercise data I had from when I started with the new phone. Well, I did uh, the exercise data. I did lose the exercise data from Friday when I started the nuke and pave of the iPhone till Sunday night when I fixed it. But the good news is I had a very relaxing, rainy weekend at Lindsay's, so I never hit my activity goal this weekend anyway. After the reset, the pairing process went smoothly. The phone offered to put all available apps on the watch. But now what kind of fun is that? I'm doing a nuke and pave on my Apple Watch as well. I'm not 100% done with the pave part of the Apple Watch, but I'm having a blast doing it. I'm kind of weird that way. The bottom line is that if you're cursed with the my iPhone doesn't look new syndrome, I can highly recommend a nuke and pave. It'll give you endless hours of entertainment mixed with a wee bit of frustration. But when you're done, your iPhone will be pristine and feel light and snappy. That is until you start finding new fun apps to clog it up with in the, in the app store. You know, I just thought of something. If you've got an older iPhone, you could make it feel brand new with a nuke and pave Plus iOS 15. I write around 5,000 words per week for the blog and podcast, and I thought it might be fun to pull back the curtain to tell you a little part of my process. As I've mentioned before, I start writing my raw text in the cross platform app Ulysses. With Ulysses, I can write in Markdown on my Mac or iPad Pro with a smart keyboard and have it perfectly synced at all times. This flexibility is probably the main reason I start in Ulysses. The one thing I don't like about Markdown, and it's not Ulysses' fault, is that Markdown links are very simplified. You put in the words you want to show in the web browser and then add the link to where you want to send the reader when they click those words. But in HTML, I can add more to the link. And one thing I always do is add code to tell the link to open in a new tab rather than driving traffic away from my website. My solution is to do my initial writing in Ulysses with ugly links, and then export to Markdown and copy and paste into my blogging software of choice, MarsEdit. MarsEdit supports Markdown too, but I can also intermingle my HTML links with the Markdown. At this point in writing a blog post, I feel like I'm just minutes away from publishing the blog post because writing the content is the hard part. All I have to do is embed my images, and I'm done. Well, you know, a little bit of proofreading. This task of adding the images often takes days for me to complete. Part of the problem is I can't embed images while I'm doing the writing in Ulysses. I take the screenshots for the blog post as I'm writing because that's when I remember what views would be interesting about what I'm describing. I can drag images into Ulysses, but they make these weird little thumbnails and the content isn't exported when I take it out of there and go to put it in MarsEdit anyway, so it doesn't really do me any good to have them in Ulysses. There might be a way to do it, and maybe if you know about that, you can let me know. But, I don't know, the formatting in Ulysses is definitely not what I want anyway. It's too simplified. Instead, I put placeholders into the text in Ulysses to remind me of the name of which image goes where, and when I get over to Mars Edit, I simply drag the images in. With MarsEdit, I have these sweet templates set up that will right-justify the image, puts a margin on the left, make it into an HTML figure so I can give you a caption, and even puts a nice little gray thin border around it. It's trivially easy with MarsEdit to make these images look good and be informative. Often though, I run into a barrier to my clean process. Let's take the example of my recent 2800 word-long post about how Apple apps are really inside your normal applications folder. In that post, I explained a problem I was having with spotlight indexing. I talked about several different ways to kickstart syncing, including the process of dragging your drive into the privacy window in System Preferences. I wanted to take a screenshot of that process for the show notes, showing the disk drive being dragged into System Preferences. Unfortunately, if you take a screenshot of System Preferences while dragging in the drive, the drive does not show up in the screenshot which is the whole point of this screenshot. The process I followed to get a reasonably good screenshot is a perfect example of why it takes me so long to write my blog posts. Here's what I did to get you a good-looking, informative screenshot for that one blog post. First, I took a regular screenshot of the Spotlight Preference pane showing privacy. Next, I needed an image of the drive that I could paste into the screenshot. The easiest way to get an icon as an image file is to select the file or drive in question and use Command-I to get info. Then you select the icon in the Get Info window and copy. This will put the image into your copy buffer. You can then open Preview and you'll see the beautiful artwork the developer has created for their app. The one problem is that in most cases, the icon isn't just a single PNG file. It's a series of images that represent different states of the app in a file format called .ICNS. Unfortunately for me, the drive icon is one of these .ICNS files. Oddly for Apple, it still says internal hard disk, by the way, even though it's an SSD, and it's been many years since Apple shipped a spinning hard disk in a Mac laptop. But anyway, back to the point, I can't use this .icns format with lots of different images embedded in it, so from there, I had to export from Preview to a single PNG. Okay, great. Now I've got the icon for the drive and the screenshot of Spotlight's privacy preferences. I could have used some fancy app like Affinity Designer to place the drive icon into the preferences image, but I decided to see what would happen if I just tried to do it in Apple's Preview. I opened both images and I simply copied the drive image and pasted it onto the, preference pane, uh, the preferences image and it worked. Well, as long as you define worked as having a giant version of the drive, nearly completely obscuring the entire preference pane. So now things got tricky. I resized the drive icon in Preview while jumping back and forth to System Preferences and test-dragging the drive so I could see about how big was the size of the drive that I was trying to emulate. So back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Finally I got it about the right size. And then I realized that in the real dragging operation, the name of the drive was supposed to be showing under the icon. I added text in Preview and I typed in Macintosh HD and I moved it under the drive. It was the wrong size, the wrong color, and the wrong font. Now I know Apple uses San Francisco as the system font, but even I drew the line at downloading a font just for this dumb screenshot. I set it to something vaguely similar and decided close enough. And then I realized that when you drag in the the disc to system preferences, the text becomes white with a blue background. Okay, fine. I made the text white and then I created a blue rounded rectangle but when I dragged the blue rectangle over to the text, the blue rectangle went on top of the text instead of under it, since the most recent objects go on top in preview. Okay, fine. I duplicated the white text, so the duplicated version of the the, the word Macintosh HD was newer. I deleted the original, and then I was able to drag the blue rectangle under the disk named in white. Finally, I was ready for the last step drawing a couple of red arrows indicating movement of the disc onto the window, and I was done. Well, the bottom line is, that was all for one single screenshot, just so I could be as clear as possible in explaining what I was doing. Now, not every screenshot takes as long as this one did, but it's surprisingly common for me to have to do a lot of work to get a screenshot just right. I'm not asking for a medal or anything, but hopefully when you see my screenshots on the blog, maybe you'll smile in the knowledge that I worked really hard to make it look good. Oh, and for those of you been yelling at your devices through this explanation, yes, you're right. I could have used a timed screenshot to show the hard drive being dragged into system preferences, which I have realized an hour after I posted the article. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. Everything is fiddly recordings. Comments and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to be one of the cool kids and become a patron of the PodFeed podcast? You can do that by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you'd like to do a one-time donation, you can get there by going to podfeet.com slash PayPal. If you'd like to join in the conversation, we have a Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook and a Slack community at podfee.com slash Slack, where the real nerds hang out. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Michael, also known as Pokemon Dad, did for the first time, head on over to podfie.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.